From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Dylan Hall. And I'm Jeremy Maho, and we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and all around the world. This week, in our main interview, we are wondering about plants. What is it like to be a plant? Can we even know? Do plants make choices? Stay tuned to hear Terra Informer Charlie Blaze interview with plant biologist Megan Lubotina, her work studying sunflower behavior, and much, much more. But first, here are this week's environmental news headlines. Government of Ontario is currently consulting the public about what to do with permits that allow bottling of Ontario's water, particularly by multinational corporation Nestle. There is currently a moratorium on permits, so no new permits are allowed, because it was made known to the public in 2016 that Ontario is charging just $3.71 for every million litres of water extracted by bottling companies, plus permitting fees. For low or medium risk water takings, those permitting fees cost just $750. And for those considered a high risk to the environment, $3,000. Many members of the public were quite upset that water was being given away at such a cheap cost. Additionally, this was costing taxpayers big bucks, essentially subsidizing Nestle and other water bottling companies. According to former Environmental Commissioner Ellen Schwartzel, in her annual report at the time, the per liter charge recovered only about 1.2% of the government's total water management costs. All of this attention has led to an, a fee increase, new government research, and a two-year moratorium that isn't allowing for any new permits to be granted. The fee increased to $503.71 per million liters, an amount that just covers the costs of regulating this industry. Though when you think about the price of a bottle of water, many wonder if this is still too low. New research by the government is also examining the effects of the water bottling industry on Ontario's environment. Since this research is not yet complete, the government is now proposing to extend the moratorium on new permits to allow the research to finish so it can recommend future changes to the industry's regulation. You can learn more and share your thoughts on this proposed extension with the Ontario government until November 29th by taking their survey online. Go to the Environmental Registry of Ontario and search Extending the Moratorium on Water Bottling Permits, or go to our website, terrainforma.ca, for the direct link.
In other news, the City of Edmonton has released its Climate Change Adaptation and Action Plan and will be presenting it to City Council's Executive Committee on November 13th. The plan lays out 18 actions, including both specific steps and more vague approaches to facing this challenge. Some of these actions include developing community resilience hubs to support residents during times of extreme weather, plans to address flooding and drought in collaboration with EPCOR, combating Edmonton's urban heat island effect by establishing a cool Edmonton program, and working with communities, businesses, and institutions on climate change resiliency. The plan also takes into account the costs of doing nothing, which include a reduced average annual GDP of $3.2 billion and a predicted 22,000 more health incidents by the 2050s. The plan identifies changing temperatures and precipitation levels, extreme weather, and changing ecosystems as Edmonton's greatest risks from climate change. In global news, research out of the United Nations says that the ozone layer is showing signs of continuing recovery from the destructive pollutants and is likely to heal fully by 2060. But wait, let's step back. What is the ozone? The atmosphere around our Earth contains small amounts of ozone, molecules made from three oxygen atoms. Ozone has played a major role in absorbing ultraviolet radiation from the sun, which would otherwise negatively impact life on Earth. Think intense cancer. In 1995, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded jointly to Paul Crutzen, Mario Molina, and Sherwood Rowland, who contributed to a theory that an increased thinning of the ozone layer at the poles could be explained by the emission of industrial gases, particularly CFCs used in refrigeration. The Montreal Agreement, signed in 1987 by international governments, caused governments across the globe to commit to the reduction and elimination of these harmful chemicals. This is a positive example of the world coming together to stop a particular type of global environmental damage. According to Eric Solheim, head of the UN Environment, quote, the Montreal Protocol is one of the most successful multilateral agreements in history, end quote. Now the question is, can the same kind of agreement work for climate change? The key problem here is that CFCs weren't essential for providing energy to the global economy, unlike fossil fuels. Interestingly though, according to Derwood Zalke, president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, quote, the Montreal Protocol has fulfilled its original objective to heal the ozone layer, but it didn't stop there. Because CFCs and related gases are also super climate pollutants, phasing them out has reduced the climate problem by an amount that would have equaled the contribution of carbon dioxide today, more than half of all warming, end quote. So, essentially, if this agreement hadn't happened, climate change would be a whole lot worse. Now, on to our story for the week. Do plants behave? Do they have free will or personality? 
Or do you think that plants just react like genetically programmed machines? Surely they don't think. Well, perhaps it depends on how you define thinking. We don't have the answers to these questions, but that is why we now turn to Terror Informer Charlie Blaze and her interview with Megan, a graduate student at the University of Alberta who studies plant behavior, specifically root foraging, or the ways that plants grow and stretch or reach for nourishing nutrients and life-giving water. They are behaving and they are making decisions in their own planty way. My name's Megan. I'm a graduate student at the University of Alberta and I study plant behavior. start. Uh, could you tell me what your favorite plant is and why? <laughs> uh, I love this question. I, I ask a lot of people this question and people often don't really have an answer, which is sad. I find it hard to choose. I really like sunflowers. They're the plant that I study. I just think they're really beautiful. They're kind of charming plants um, and they have a lot of really interesting behaviors. I also really like mimosa, which is a sensitive plant that closes mm -hmm. up when you touch its leaves. It's really kind of a shy plant and I relate to it in that way. So I really <laughs> like the mimosa. Me too. They're really fun to play around with. Yeah, they are. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about what you're studying? Sure. So I study root foraging which sounds kind of confusing um, and makes people, sometimes I think, think of animals that are foraging for roots, but that's not what it is. <laughs> um, it's just essentially the idea is that plants need to get resources from their environments. So one of the main resources that they need is nutrients um, from the soil. And so they have just a variety of different ways to sort of increase the amount of resources that they're getting from the soil. And so obviously plants aren't really known for, uh, excluding plants like mimosa, they're not really known for their ability to move around. So what they do is really change where their roots are in the soil by changing the way that they grow. They change their physiology, so they change the amount of transporters for nutrients in different areas of their roots. So they have these physiological changes. And I study essentially how plants change the way that they grow in order to forage. So how are you able to see what the roots are doing when they're buried below ground? Yeah, so that's a very challenging but exciting aspect of studying root foraging behavior. So what I do is I grow plants in like thin plastic boxes. There's a lot of different ways to look at roots. I'm lucky because I study roots in a greenhouse, but it's really difficult to study roots in the field. So people often like hammer tubes into the grounds and then insert cameras in those tubes. There's also these big rooms called rhizotrons that are below ground that lets people study roots. But definitely being able to see the roots is a huge challenge in studying root behavior for sure. I mean some people also just will take cores at the end of an experiment so they'll go in and see where the roots are by taking cores but that means that they've killed the plant and they can't really look at how the roots change over time, which is really what I want to look at in my work. 
That's really cool to think of like the Rhizotrons like yeah, I really want to like go underground. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to go to one one day. It's yeah. definitely um, a life goal. So normally, using terms like foraging and stuff, that's more like how we talk about animals. And so how do you think that using the term plant foraging kind of gives a different perspective on how plants get the nutrients they need to grow and maybe like sort of opens up new areas of research? How is the field sort of changing in that way? Yeah, so I think um, it is definitely uh, less so now, but it's definitely been controversial to describe plants as foraging and to describe plants as behaving. Um, And one of the reasons why it's useful is because some of the ways that animal behaviorists look at foraging in animals, some of the ways that they think about it and describe it, so whether that's mathematically or or just qualitatively, the way that they think about um, and model foraging in animals, we can use those same models and those same ideas in plants. So that's one reason why, despite the fact that it's sort of controversial and people look at you funny sometimes, um, it is actually, there is like a, a very legitimate sort of scientific reason for using the term foraging in reference to plants and using the term behavior. And I also think sometimes it just it just helps to say something that surprises people or makes people think a little bit differently just because it makes people reconsider their assumptions. Thinking about that, like was there a moment for you when the way you thought about plants sort of shifted to beings that have behavior and all this crazy stuff? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a process. It's not a super exciting story. I, I wasn't like looking at a plant mm-hmm. one day or yeah. anything like that. <laughs> but just taking my supervisor's class in my undergraduate and hearing the way that he talked about plants and just thinking about them really differently. It didn't take me a long time to like drink the Kool-Aid and like <laughs> hop on the bandwagon. I was like pretty pretty open to the idea because I've always been sort of more interested in the organisms that are a little maybe a little underappreciated compared to like charming mammals and stuff like this. So saying that plants have behavior sort of implies that they're like almost like making decisions about like things like how they're growing. So how can they do this without having a brain and eyes? Because that's sort of something that we, I feel like, associate with behavior. Yeah, for sure. Terms like behavior and decision are so uh, sort of loaded, and we have a really Mm. sort of specific idea about what those terms mean. Um, And we think of our own behaviors and our own decisions. So it really comes down to your definitions of the words, which the thing is about the term behavior, for example, like, people who study animal behavior do not agree upon what constitutes behavior and what does not constitute behavior. So it's actually something that if you look at the scientific literature, there's just not a consensus to what behavior means or even what a decision means necessarily. I think what's sort of important is that a lot of people who study animals don't make assumptions about what's happening. So you don't necessarily assume that, oh, the animal is thinking things. They just have been shaped over evolutionary time, so over after generation and generation and generation, to do things that increase their fitness. And so the same thing applies to plants. So obviously plants don't have brains, but they do have systems in their bodies that allows them to take in information. So they have light receptors, they have receptors for chemicals, they have all these ways of perceiving their environments. Um, And so we know they don't have a big central cognitive system the way that we do, but they just have ways of taking in this information and then integrating it in their bodies. And so if we think of a decision as just, you know, being faced with two or more options and 
being able to do more than one thing and, and choosing something, then plants are definitely able to do that. Whether they're like, they're definitely not thinking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but depending on how you define these words, they, they are behaving and they are making decisions based on the information that they are able to take in in their own planty way. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM on Treaty 6 territory. You can find this episode and others on our website at terrainforma.ca. Now back to our interview with Charlie and Megan Lubotina. Diving in a bit more to your research, what have you been finding so far? So one of the main ways that plant roots forage is by putting more roots where the nutrients are. So it's pretty straightforward. If the plant is growing into the soil and it encounters a really good, like tasty patch of nutrients, it responds by just proliferating roots like crazy in that area of the soil. And so this varies and uh, different plants do this to different extents. Um, but I'm looking at how this response to patches changes based on the social context that the plant is living in. So plants live in neighborhoods essentially and they have these neighbors around them that they live next to their whole lives. And so because they have to deal with these neighbors for their entire lives, they have to be able to take in information about their neighbors and respond to their neighbors. And so they don't do this the way that we do this with our neighbors, but they can take in information about the changes in light that their neighbors are causing. They can take in information about the chemicals that their neighbors are producing. And so they're able to really change their behavior, the way that they grow in response to neighbors. And so I'm looking at how over time, having a neighbor near a patch or maybe away from a patch changes the behavior of plants. And what I'm finding is that plants really change the way that they uh, respond to patches depending on their social environment. So it seems like plants are taking information about their social environment to maybe make more useful decisions about foraging in their environment. Plants are typically in competition with their neighbors for resources, mm -hmm. so they're taking in light, they're taking in nutrients, they're taking in water. All plants kind of need the same resources, so, so competition is, is typical in plant communities. Right. So if you have a plant and then it's got its neighbor, how is it sort of sensing its neighbor there? How does it know? <laughs> yeah, so it's not entirely clear in my own work. There could be a host of reasons. One of the most simple explanations, but that still would allow the plant to get information about neighbors, is just that the neighbors are changing the resource levels. So by changing the amount of light, by changing the amount of resources, the plant might not be directly sensing a neighbor, but it's still able to use that information to change its behavior. So that's sort of the simplest explanation. And then there's also sort of qualitative changes to the environment, so changes in not the amount of light, but the type of light. So plants take in certain wavelengths of light. So if a neighbor is next to you, it would really change the ratio of, of the different types of light. And then below ground, plants are always producing, exuding chemicals. And some of these chemicals seem to have a function in actually like harming other plants or killing organisms that could potentially hurt the plant. Some of them we don't really know, but they seem to be potential cues that plants use to know where a neighbor is and to respond to a neighbor. And so people have done experiments where they actually just take plant root 
exudates, which is just the chemicals that the plant roots produce, and they apply those to the soil where a plant is growing, and the plant changes the way that it grows in response to that. So from that, they're able to discern that somehow plants are taking in the information from the chemicals, as well as whatever the plant's doing to the resource levels in the soil. So the plants are sort of picking up cues from each other. Are the neighbors sending these cues out purposefully? Yeah, so behavioral ecologists define and delimit very strictly the difference between a cue and a signal. So a cue is sort of thought to be information that an organism produces that other organisms use, but the organism that produces the cue is not necessarily benefiting from producing it, whereas a signal is, to use imprecise language, a signal is sort of intentional. So the organism that's producing the signal is producing it for a reason. But even in animal behavioral ecology, it's actually kind of hard to tell when something's a cue and when something's a signal. So there's some examples that seem pretty obvious, that have a pretty obvious benefit to the signaler that we think of as signals. Um, And there's some that we think are probably not signals and that are just cues, just sort of side effects of how organisms live. I think it's particularly hard to tell the difference between cues and signals in plants. So unless you're able to actually quantify the effect that the whatever the cue slash signal is having on the the sender of it. It's really hard to say, but you can imagine that it could potentially benefit both plants if a plant is producing just basically a signal that says, I'm here, and you can use that information however you want, <laughs> but I'm here. Um, and so if, the, if another plant then avoids that plant and they can both kind of take up their own areas of the soil without overlapping as much, that could potentially be beneficial for, for both individuals. What are some ways that the plants are responding to their neighbors? So uh, an experiment that somebody did in the lab came out a few years ago was looking at how plants respond to heterogeneity in their environment with and without a neighbor. It's very similar to my own work and this particular species that they used when they were grown alone. They just grew roots out to the full extent of the pot um, and kind of ignored the patch. And then when they added a neighbor into the environment, it really changed. So the plants that were grown with a neighbor and no patch, so no heterogeneity, heterogeneity in their environments really avoided the neighbor, which is common in plants. So they they stopped putting roots anywhere close to where the neighbor was, and the root systems were like very segregated. Um, But when the authors put a patch in between the two plants, so there's this high quality, valuable patch in between the two plants, the plants changed the way that they grew and they actually grew their roots over each other, like overlapped where the patch was. Um, Mm. So when the plants were grown alone, didn't really respond to the patch. When the plants were grown with a neighbor, they responded to the patch and changed the way that they grew. So this is just one example of how plants seem to use information about their neighbors to um, make different decisions. I saw one paper that you worked on. It was an experiment, and it found that plants with their leaves removed to simulate herbivory were less effective at foraging than others? Yeah, so that is from some undergraduate research that I did. So we took sunflowers, we hurt some of them real bad and stressed them out real bad, um, and then looked at how they foraged after that. And so, yeah, we found that plants that weren't damaged, they responded sort of normally in the sense that they put more roots where the nutrients were. In this sense, you can kind of think of them as making good decisions um, about foraging. So they're taking advantage of the high nutrient patch, they're investing more where the nutrients are. And then the plants that we damaged and we stressed out were no longer putting more roots where the nutrients are. So they were no longer making these sort of good decisions and they were just sort of foraging um, randomly in the environment and putting just as much root in the non-high nutrient soil as the high nutrient soil. 
And so we can sort of see analogies in studies of certain animals and especially like in the labs, like rats and also in human beings that when organisms experience a stressor, they're less capable of making quote-unquote good decisions or decisions that could potentially increase their fitness. I mean, it makes sense, but it's like, it's just neat to think it's about It's surprising, these things, like in I, the, yeah. In it, terms of plants, yeah. And the interesting thing about that experiment as well was that we worked with some mechanical engineers who have a way of like imaging the soil to look at where the roots are growing over time. And if we hadn't taken dynamic measures, if we'd just taken endpoint measures, we wouldn't have actually been able to detect how the plants were behaving differently after the stressor because the endpoint measures told us something really different. So it just kind of goes to show that looking at the dynamics of roots, even though it's really hard and frustrating sometimes, is really important to understanding plants. Just right. like animals, right? Like you yeah. want to look at a snapshot of what an animal is doing at one point in time in order to try to understand its behavior. But unfortunately, that's sort of a lot of what we do when we look at plants and when we look at, we do experiments with plants. It's cool now that we have the technology like with like, you know, when it, you take a bunch of photos or like a, a video and then like you speed it up. Lapse. Yeah, t- thank you. <laughs> yeah, like time lapse. It's so cool. Yeah. Now you can kind of get a sense of how like the behavior works because it's just on a different time scale from us. Yeah, we're yeah. super lucky to live yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be able to watch plants. Totally. <laughs> and is there any, like, application of this sort of research? Yeah, so that's my my research. I'm definitely interested in sort of the pure discovery side of things and so just sort of understanding plants and um, understanding the way that they work. But plants are you know, essentially all of our food, tons of the stuff that we use as human beings comes from plants. And particularly in agriculture, it's really worth understanding how plants take up resources. And if we think about plants as sort of organisms that are responding to their environments instead of just factories, sort of where you put in resources (laughs) and you get out resources, we really think about how plants Um, take up resources, how they respond to their environments. We can use that information to maybe improve how we deliver resources to plants. So if plants forage better, if they're able to take up more resources, when those resources are presented in a certain way or when neighbors are arranged in a certain way, then maybe we can be more efficient in how we grow plants, which is just key. We we just need to grow plants and hopefully lots of plants and hopefully (laughs) big plants. And so just understanding plants as organisms better. It's definitely a few steps sort of down the line from understanding what does this plant do in a box (laughs) um, to like actually using that. But just understanding plants is really important to us as a species. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about all this today, Megan. Thanks for having me. was Charlie Blay in conversation with Megan Lubotina, a graduate student studying plant behavior at the University of Alberta. We hope you've enjoyed the plants and the discussion. For more episodes about plants and a hundred other topics related to the environment and science, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Terra Informa is produced at CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can send an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. We'd love to hear from you. We are always looking for new story ideas so we can keep reporting on what is important to our listeners. Thanks to the folks who worked on this week's episode, Shelley Jodoin, Hannah Cunningham, Amanda Rooney, Charlie Blay, and Elizabeth Dowdell. We've been your hosts, Jeremy Mahoe and Dylan Hall. Catch us again next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>